earthbound observers could hardly believe their eyes, as telescopes the world over turned skywards to catch a glimpse of the USSR's most recent space launch. Actually, launch wasn't the proper word. Launches was more appropriate. Not only were there two Soviet spacecraft in orbit at once, fired off just barely a day apart, but they were close to one another. Unnervingly close. From the ground, it looked as though this meeting of Vostoks could only have been the result of careful planning and orbital maneuvering. If that were the case, then the Vostok spacecraft was even more advanced than NASA and the Western world knew. The delicate dance unfolding above was far beyond the capabilities of the Americans. For all of the progress they had made in recent months, Perhaps there wasn't really a chance that the U.S. could overtake the Soviets in space, after all. Welcome to Episode 15 of Frontier of Infinity. The Soviets Strike Back. For the past couple episodes, we've been focusing mainly on the American side of the story. First with John Glenn, and then with Scott Carpenter's two orbital flights. 1962 thus far has seen two American manned space flights, but none from the Soviets. In this episode, we're going to shift our focus back to the Soviet side, and catch up with Sergei Kurlyov and the Soviet space program. They haven't been idle. In fact, they've been monitoring the Americans with great interest, and Kurlyov will be called upon to assemble a mission capable of assuring the world that despite the Americans' successes, the Soviets are still the dominant power in space. When we last saw Sergei Kurlyov, he was encountering some difficulties with the development of his N-1 launch vehicle, which he hoped would be the rocket that would eventually place a Soviet crew on the moon. Most notably, he had not managed to convince the Soviet Union's premier engine designer, Valentin Glushko, to come on board the project. Worse than that, a series of explosive disagreements had damaged their relationship beyond repair. Glushko and Kurlyov were on the outs, and that wouldn't change for the rest of their lives. The last Soviet manned launch was Vostok 2, which carried German Titov into orbit for an entire day back during the summer of 1961. Overall, it was a successful mission. Titov returned back to the Earth safely, though he had a rough go of it while in orbit. First, he fell ill, suffering nausea and vertigo from so-called space sickness. There were also some problems with the climate control system, and the capsule became quite cold. But all in all, it was a success which put the ballistic flight flown by Gus Grissom around the same time to shame. Soon after Titov's return, in August of 1961, 
Kurilov was already laying plans for the next two Vostok flights. He was quite keen on learning more about how prolonged space travel could affect a person. His long-term plans for space exploration would require long-duration missions. But before that became a tenable possibility, more information on the rigors of spaceflight had to be collected. Kurilov proposed three manned launches within just a couple days of one another, so that all three of the spacecraft would be in orbit at the same time. Each capsule would be in orbit for between two and three days, not only allowing for ample time to collect data on long space flights, but also providing an opportunity to assess the feasibility of managing multiple spacecraft at once. It was his hope that the launches could occur as early as November of 1961. But there was quite a bit of resistance to Kurilov's plan. First, there was abundant concern among the Soviet spaceflight community regarding the potential dangers of the space sickness that had plagued German Titov. What if longer flights would bring more severe illness? General Nikolai Kamenin, head of the Cosmonaut Training Center, was chief among this crowd of skeptics. He argued that such an ambitious plan would not be tenable until 1962, and that the mission should not endure beyond two days to limit the chances of inflicting severe damage on his cosmonauts. A two-day limit would mean that the three-craft mission plan would have to be scrapped. Two would be the maximum number of spacecraft able to be launched in that time frame. This thoroughly angered Kurilov, and then any hopes of a November launch were lost when it was decided that the Zenit spy satellite program would have launch priority. By December, the flight had been pushed back to March of 1962, and there was still no consensus regarding how long this multiple launch mission would be. As 1962 dawned, Kurilov's troubles with the N-1 deepened. But come February, and the launch of John Glenn on Friendship 7, Dmitry Ustinov, chairman of the Military Industrial Commission, demanded that Kurilov put together a mission to serve as a response. The obvious choice was to go ahead with the multi-launch mission. It would be more than enough to make Glenn's flight look like a pleasant stroll in the park. General Kamenin selected two cosmonauts who would fly, Andrian Nikolaev and Pavel Popovich. It was decided that only two Vostoks would fly, but there was still derision over how long the mission would last. Regardless, the launch was supposed to go through around March 10th, but a launch failure with one of the Zenit satellites required that it be postponed. The mission was delayed again this time into April, providing more time for the argument over mission duration to rage. On the 9th of April, Kamenin brought up data collected during a joint American-West German experiment wherein five men were confined to a fallout shelter for five days. The results were not promising. The men suffered both physical and mental deterioration, how bad could the damage be if instead of a fallout shelter, a man was confined to a tiny space capsule miles above the Earth? 
but Kurlyov did not give in. He continued to push for a three-day mission and eventually got his way. On the 18th of April, the three-day mission scheme was officially approved. The plan was to launch Vostok 3 first. It would remain in orbit for the full three days. The following day after the first launch, Vostok 4 would be launched as well, which would remain in orbit for two days. The two capsules would then re-enter and come down together. But the two launches continued to be delayed throughout the summer, largely due to the Zenit program, including a booster failure that damaged the launch pad and required some time to repair. Finally, the mission was rescheduled for the 11th and 12th of August. Kurlyov was nervous on the morning of the launch. The recent failures that had plagued Baikonur had left him unnerved. But on the 11th of August, Vostok 3 rumbled skyward, carrying Andrian Nikolaev. It achieved a stable orbit, and the mission got underway. Nikolaev had a good time during his first day in orbit, a sharp contrast to poor German Titov's experience. He was the first space traveler to unhook himself from his couch and float freely in the cabin of his spacecraft. The television camera in the capsule beamed live images back down to the surface, where Nikolaev, freshly promoted to major, waved down at the teeming billions on the pale earth and enjoyed his onboard rations. So far, so good. The next day, Pavel Popovich reached orbit aboard Vostok 4. Nikolaev maneuvered his capsule around so that he could observe his fellow cosmonaut arrive in orbit, though he couldn't make out all that much. Regardless, at the moment of Popovich's orbital insertion, the two capsules were a mere five kilometers, or three miles, apart from one another. They were so close that from the ground, it appeared that this was an orchestrated orbital rendezvous, one that would require orbital maneuvering well beyond the abilities of NASA. Of course, such was not the case. The launches had simply been carefully timed, with the orbital inclination of the two vessels delicately arranged to bring them near to one another for a short period. This was all a part of Kurlyov's plan. It made the mission appear a good deal more technically impressive than it actually was, and it sparked fears among Western observers that the Vostok spacecraft had much more sophisticated maneuvering capabilities than was originally thought. The Soviets made no public statements about the apparent rendezvous, allowing nervous minds in the U.S. and Europe to fill in the gaps with fantastical imaginings of superior Soviet technology. The carefully managed drought of information was effective, prompting Sir Bernard Lovell from the Jodrell Bank Observatory to state, quote, I think the Soviets are so far ahead in the technique of rocketry that the possibility of America catching up in the next decade is remote. End quote. With two Vostoks in orbit simultaneously, Popovich and Nikolaev contacted one another over the radio and maintained ship-to-ship -ship communications throughout the rest of the mission. Another first. Over the course of the next two days, 
both cosmonauts spent a good deal of time out of their seats, floating about in the microgravity, and completing tests of their abilities to operate in a low-gravity environment. All the while, their biosensors kept close tabs on their biologic processes, providing valuable data about the human body in space. Overall, the results were positive. Both men proved that they could operate perfectly well in a microgravity environment. Perhaps most importantly, neither one of them fell ill. There was not a hint of the malady that had so terribly vexed Germontitov. Nikolaev even spoke briefly with the Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, over the radio. But unfortunately, there was so much interference on the line that most of their conversation was garbled and unintelligible. Each day, the cosmonauts were scheduled eight full hours to sleep, the first time that a spacefarer would attempt as much while in orbit. Nikolaev was pleased to find that he slept remarkably well, though he didn't manage to ever sleep through the entire eight-hour period, tending to wake after roughly six hours asleep. By day three, the mission was going so well that some voices on the ground urged for Kurilov and his team to stretch the mission out longer. Why not keep Vostok 3 up for four days rather than three, since everything was going so well? General Kamenin was opposed to the notion, but when the question was posed to the cosmonauts, Pavel Popovich replied that he was all for staying aloft for another day. Ultimately, they didn't end up leaving the cosmonauts up for another full 24-hour period, and on August 15th, both capsules fired their retro rockets and descended back through the atmosphere, where they came down just 6 minutes and 193 kilometers, approximately 120 miles, apart. The mission was a resounding success. The Kremlin was beside itself with glee, and celebrations rocked Moscow. The Soviets had taken a massive leap forward in the space race. Not only had they launched the longest manned mission yet, with Vostok 3 spending nearly four whole days in space while completing 64 orbits, but they had also been the first to fly multiple manned spacecraft at once. The mission had revealed new and valuable information about the ability of humans to live and work in space over prolonged periods. And to cap it all off, there was the delectable deception they had managed to pull off by making it appear as though they had coordinated an orbital rendezvous. It had been nearly a year since the Soviets had launched a manned mission but they had more than made up for that lost time with Vostok's 3 and 4. There could be no doubt that the Soviets were still the global leaders in space. This was just the beginning of a streak of good fortune for Kurlyov. The following month, he received authorization to build the N1. He tweaked the design altering it to be capable of lifting 75 tons, more than enough to fulfill a military role, as well as to live up to his hope to use it as a moon rocket. To make things even better, Kurlyov won the fuel debate that had ripped he and Valentin Glushko apart. 
the N1 would be powered by cryogenic fuels, which Kurlyov was far more comfortable working with, specifically liquid oxygen and kerosene. Nikolai Kuznetsov, whom Kurlyov had selected to design the engines in lieu of Glushko, was working on the thrusters that would propel the rocket spaceward. The first stage would be launched with NK-15 engines, capable of 153.4 tons of thrust. A separate design, designated the NK-15V, would be used for the second stage, with an output of 180 tons of thrust. Kurlyov's moon plan finally had the support it needed to move forward. He had the backing of the Council of Ministers, as well as the Central Committee of the Communist Party. Kurlyov planned a sweeping operation involving nearly every major figure in the Soviet defense and spaceflight communities, excepting Glushko, of course. The first launch of the N-1 was tentatively planned for 1965, granting Kurlyov about three years to get the plans finished, build and test prototypes, and deliver a functional version of the largest rocket the Soviet Union had ever seen. Granted, there was still no firm plan to use it for a space mission, but at the very least, Kurlyov was allowed to move forward with the vehicle he would need to compete with Werner von Braun's Saturn V. The Soviets had won a great victory in the space race, and were now serious competitors in the moon race. When we return, we'll take a look at the next Mercury launch in the United States and check in on Deke Slayton, as he was removed from flight status due to a heart condition in the last episode. Von Braun is working on the Saturn V. Kurlyov on the N1. The Soviets have retained and even expanded their lead in the space race. But there's still a long way to go on both sides of the world as the struggle for dominance above continues. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share this show with your friends and family, and leave a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Mm-hmm.